Hello and welcome to this very first episode of the Zeitgeist podcast by me, Katja Heuer, a German historian with a mild obsession for her birth country's history. You are listening to the podcast of my Zeitgeist Substack, which is a forum that will hopefully capture some of my conversations about Germany's past, present and maybe even its future. Who knows? It's really a brand new thing and the beauty of it is that we can take it wherever this community of readers and listeners wanted to go. Um, so feel free to let me know your thoughts, questions or comments. I'm very pleased to say that this very first episode starts the Zeitgeist podcast off with a bit of historical stardust. I'm delighted to welcome Roger Morehouse. Roger is a historian and author specializing in modern Germany and Central European history with uh, a particular interest in Nazi Germany, the Holocaust and World War II in Europe. He is also a visiting professor at the College of Europe in Warsaw and the author of a number of excellent books on modern Germany um, and modern German history, including Killing Hitler, Berlin at War, The Third Reich and 100 Objects, The Devil's Alliance, Hitler's Pact with Stalin, 1939 to 1941, and First to Fight, the British War, 1939. Roger is a regular commentator in um, the Specialist and General Press and also a consultant for film and television. But today he's here to speak to me about his new book, The Forgers, The Forgotten History of the Holocaust's Most Audacious Rescue Operation, available now in all good bookshops. Hello, Roger. Welcome to Zeitgeist. Hello, Katja. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for, for being here. I'm very delighted to have you of all people here to speak about, um, you know, not German history, obviously, but um, Central European history as well and broaden the, the scope a little bit. Um, can you tell us a bit about your book to start with? Who who were the forgers that are in your title? Yeah, the forgers. It's, um, it was a, a, a group of six individuals, um, Polish diplomats and uh, Jewish uh, activists, if you like, aid activists, um, who were all working out of um, Bern in Switzerland, the Swiss capital, during the moment. Um, it's colloquially known generally as the Wadosh group, and that's after the ambassador himself, Alexander Wadosh, uh, who headed it up. Um, and they came together in 1940, 41, um, and essentially they were being inundated with uh, demands for help from primarily Polish Jews who were still in, in, in German-occupied Poland. Um, they had assisted a, a few individuals on a sort of ad hoc basis in 1941 already with sort of with paperwork and with passports and so on. And this sort of was known amongst the, uh, you know, on the grapevine of, of those uh, Jews in occupied Poland. Um, so they say they began to be sort of inundated with demands for for, um, for uh, uh, passports and paperwork to, to people trying to escape the Holocaust, essentially. Um, so that that they sort of formed together from that very ad hoc sort of organic beginning. They they got together and started what was basically a sort of cottage industry, um, producing uh, Latin American passports, primarily Paraguayan passports, illegally in them. Um, with the help of the Paraguayan honorary consul, who was a Swiss by the name of uh, Rudolf Hugli. Um, and they, by, by 1944, beginning of 1944, by the time the uh, operation was closed down, closed down by the Swiss police, um, it's estimated that they had produced uh, documents for around 10,000 people. 
um, which makes this a very significant Holocaust rescue operation. And it's one that really wasn't known about until about five years ago. So it's, it's very new. Yeah, and it's quite astonishing, really, when you think the scale of it, you know, what you just described, it's really quite an extensive undertaking and in a field uh, that is actually quite well researched. So it's quite surprising that uh, this wasn't such a known story. In your subtitle, you even call it a, a forgotten um, story, which is somewhat of a risky claim, given that there are so many uh, books out on the on the Holocaust. Um, I was quite struck by um, Sam Leith in the in the Spectator, who actually reviewed your book extremely favorably as a very positive review. But he did say that dozens and dozens of supposedly forgotten or untold stories of the Holocaust era, you know, passed across his his or pass across his desk every year. Um, so were the heroes of your story? Really forgotten, and if so, how did you find out about them? Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a good point. And actually, to to clarify, Sam Leith in his review, he did he did say, as as you suggest, he said that you know lots of claims to forgotten status are made, but he did say that this one genuinely was. Uh, mm. No, that's what struck me as well. Reading it, you know, it's one of those things that is really big and it's a genuinely new thing about the Holocaust yeah. and the field yeah. that is actually very well explored. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a reminder, I suppose, for us as historians that you know there is new stuff out there and significant new stuff that um, you know in a way we just have to sort of look a bit harder and be a bit more imaginative. Um, but that you know that particular rant aside, um, this one really was forgotten um, because and for, for the, the main reason is that they, you know there are two ways in which um, uh, sort of narratives, if you like, stories from the Holocaust or, or indeed any other subject sort of make their way into the historiography. One of which is through, you know, from official documents, um, you know, the, the records of the governments and the diplomats and all the rest of it. And the other is from individual testimony. So from the top in one, in one respect and from the bottom in another. Um, and in this case, neither sort of pathway worked. Um, the, the official pathway didn't work because as, as we know, Poland was taken over by, by the Red Army and then by the communists in 1945. Um, they uh, essentially you know, cut off the, uh, the Polish government in exile, which had been in London and had been in charge of you know, the, the whole sort of diplomatic network of, uh, of, of Poland. And Poland, of course, never formally surrendered in World War II. Um, so it, it kept its government in exile and that was, that was sort of you know, controlling that diplomatic network and controlling the Polish underground as well, crucially. So all of that was cut off. So the records on the official level were mostly in London, but also in Warsaw. But you know they were they were you know essentially sidelined by that political act. Uh, and of course, the, the communists in Warsaw had no interest in in uh, praising and glamorising what the what what the wartime government yeah. had done. So that you know that 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 route effectively was closed off. And then on the other side, the, the, the sort of personal testimony route was closed off as well, because of, the, of those um, thousands of people who received, um, in shorthand, we can call them Wadosh passports, but do documents from the Wadosh group. Um, you know, first of all, you had to survive the Holocaust, which was a, a tough ask. I mean, for all of those, they were taken out of the deportation lines, but they were sent to Belsen as a, as a sort of holding camp for, for these, what were thought to be foreign Jews. Um, you had to survive 18 months in Belsen, which is a tough ask, you know, to survive the war. Um, so, you know, that was a difficult thing. And then you had to, you know, have written some sort of memoir or some some account of your of your survival. 
Um, and the vast majority of them that that, uh, that received those papers, assuming that they survived and wrote all of those, you know, their experiences down, the vast majority knew knew nothing or next to nothing about where the passport had come from. So they, you know, they didn't necessarily have that correspondence with with Wadosh and his and his uh, diplomatic colleagues or anything else. They had they had perhaps you know a, a, a contact in Switzerland who was you know adjacent to or had personally had contact with the Wadosh group. So very often, you know, the the idea that there was some sort of Paraguayan passport that saved them, most of them were Paraguayan passports. That was all they knew. They didn't know where it came from. Know or you know the background to it or who had prepared it or whatever. whatever. So both of those paths meant that you know this story just didn't enter the the, the public narrative of the Holocaust. So it really has been forgotten. That's so interesting. Is at the middle level, basically between the big story and and individual testimony, you've got actually a, a potentially a whole field of of kind of interactions of networks. Um, yeah. Especially because so many people, you know, obviously perish. It's this particular problem with, with Holocaust studies yes. that um, that yeah. you basically end up with a lot of knowledge that just wasn't uh, passed on or down to us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's precisely right. And to and to go to your question of of um, you know how did it arrive with me? I um, this really surfaced about uh, what are we now? It's about seven years ago, I suppose. Um, but then um, Polish. Um, ambassador in, in Switzerland, whose name is Jakub Kumov. Um, he was having a reception in his in his uh, residence, and or in, in actually in the embassy building. Um, and uh, one of his guests said, "Well, the, you know, referred to the building as a holy place." And he said, well, he was "Confused and asked what asked what this gentleman meant." Um, and he was told by about this wartime operation that saved you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands, hundreds, <laughs> perhaps thousands of Jews. Um, and uh, he hadn't heard of it, so he 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 um, sent one of his staff off to do some research, and then this story began to emerge. So I was informed by, about this. This had been bubbling along in the sort of Polish press and a little bit in the Swiss press as well. Um, there'd been a few minor reports about it written in the in the years that followed, and then it sort of arrived on my desk. An email from a friend of mine who said, uh, "You know, this is this story is kind of bubbling along." You might want to um, to have a look at it, and I did. And I just thought this, as I said, it's it's a fascinating story. It had lots of um, the human aspect to it, if you like, which is what we kind of want as historians, right? You want something human to sort of deal with, and, uh, emotional emotional hook for the readers and so on. Yeah, um, and also to make this vast history more relatable and understandable, yeah, exactly. yeah. it is so yeah. complicated and so big that it's often quite difficult to break yeah, exactly. down to the personal yeah. level. And this, and it, and of course, it was a uh, it was new, which was you know catnip to me. I just thought that was that was a great thing. It's a new story from Holocaust, um, and it's a positive story from Holocaust, which is you know I mean it, it's pretty tough to find um, you know anything positive out of the Holocaust, but um, I thought. You know, this was a great story, and I took it on on that basis. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I also like the way that in the book you link it kind of back to the bigger events, and you know, take your readers basically with you, even if you know nothing about the topic or about the kind of you know details of the of the history of the Holocaust more widely. Um, it's your book's very accessible to to everyone. So one of the things, for instance, that you start off with is actually tracing the response of the international community to the increasing 
um, persecution of, of Jews in Europe and, and the increasing kind of desperation that, that refugees faced. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? So when and how did the world begin to recognize that the situation for European Jews was increasingly desperate and what did they decide to do about it? Yeah, I mean, that's, I thought it was a crucial piece of context. I mean, my, my job as I as you'll know, Katja, you know, when you start on the new project, you kind of have to work out the architecture of the book, as it were, you know, how you're going to present the material, um, you know, what the narrative arc is going to be. And having sort of read around it, I, I could see that, you know, the, the international reaction was a crucial part of this. Um, and I think it, 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 it's not as clear cut and it's not as positive as I think we, we might ordinarily imagine, particularly if we if we sort of look back with with um, you know rose tinted hindsight, and we I think we tend to imagine the outside world once the Holocaust gets going after forty one. Um, I think we tend to imagine the outside world kind of willing and able to help, but but sort of held back by by logistical concerns or strategic concerns, which are valid, of course, um, but sort of fundamentally willing to help, and and perhaps you know um, held back by a lack of knowledge of precisely what's going on. So that aspect of you know, what was known when and how that information came out was also something I wanted to address. So I thought that was all sort of rather crucial context to what was going on. Um, but this, you know, this idea, this assumption that the outside world is kind of fundamentally benign um, and is just stymied for various reasons and, and can't act, uh, I think it's fundamentally mistaken because the outside world, as far as I can tell from, from writing this book and researching it, um, is at best indifferent to the suffering of the Jews. And you can see it right the way, you know, from the late 1930s onwards, admittedly, Holocaust isn't yet happening, but um, the, the attitude fundamentally doesn't change. And I, I actually start the book as a prologue, um, I think chapter one, actually, uh, I start with the Evian Conference of 1938, which was, you know, an extended exercise in sort of buck passing. Um, you know, the international community gets together supposedly to address the refugee crisis, which resulted out of the Anschluss uh, with Austria in the spring of 1938. So they, they meet in uh, July of 1938 at Evian. Um, as I say, they basically the Europeans say, well, we're full, so it's up to the rest of the world to take, take the lead and, and let these thousands of people in. And the rest of the world says, no, it's not our problem, it's a European problem, so you, know, you, you Europeans have to solve it. Um, and in the end, they, there's a lot of hot air and there's a lot of hand wringing and a lot of sympathy, but precisely nothing is done to assist those um, you know, tens of thousands of, uh, of Austrian Jews who are, who are trying to escape Austria at the time. Um, and as I say, this, this is, of course, before the Holocaust, but you can, you can see the same mentality is expressed in a, there's a subsequent meeting in 1943 um, at Bermuda between the British and the British and the Americans which also does precisely nothing to assist the Jews. Um, uh, you know, then there's uh, the attitudes are, the, are fundamentally the same. It's, you know, that, that um, this is a problem that which, which, which will solve itself when we win the war and we don't, it's not serious enough that we have to do anything about it now. And, you know, it's just sort of kicking the can down the road. And um, you can't, they can't claim ignorance of what's going on because as I say in the book, you know, the, the, from the end of 42 onwards, effectively, um, there's sufficient intelligence available, which has been pieced together and primarily by the Polish underground, incidentally, and was brought to, to the, out, the attention of the outside world by the Polish government in exile. Um, 
there's enough information there to 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 uh, you know make it plain that the Holocaust is ongoing and is and is as serious as we now know that it that it was. Um, so that that whole wider context of Western um, the Western reaction and the Western inaction, I think, is really really important because what stands out of that is that actually the Polish government in exile. This might surprise a few people. The Polish government in exile was really exemplary in in engaging in the way that it did and it was and it was up against you know the state department the american government to a large extent the you know diplomatic community um you know trying to do its best to save lives and the rest of the world was fundamentally uh, at best indifferent yeah and this is this is really interesting i mean in the it's hard to not see this as a as a callous response when you consider kind of just the immensity of the crimes that took place in Europe and would take place in Europe. Yeah. Um, but, you, but you do take great care in the book to present a, a somewhat more nuanced approach regarding this. So, so what do you make of the response of the international world? Is it down to indifference or, or is there a kind of latent anti-Semitism? Does that play a role? I think there is a latent anti-Semitism, to be honest. I mean, it, I think it's important to distinguish um, between that sort of, as, as you know, one might call it old-fashioned anti-Semitism um, and, the, and the kind of metastasized, you know, murderous anti-Semitism that the Nazis are, are espousing at this, at this point. They're, they're, they're very different animals. Um, now, I think that the, the, the anti-Semitism of sort of Western politicians is more one of, um, no, I mean, it was said at the time that, you know, when, the, when these reports came out and Western politicians would say, "Oh, it's just the Jews sort of overreacting, and it's you know, it, it, it's it's not a big problem." It's kind of um, these are not these are not people that we need to really worry about. You know, we can we can kind of ignore it. That we'll win the war, and then then this can all be uh, you know, this will all come out in the wash, and it won't be a problem. So it's more it's more of a sort of a an indifference, but 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 influenced by a latent anti-Semitism, I would say. Um, yeah. I and think despite that, it, it is it is important to differentiate between that sort of anti-Semitism and what the Nazis were doing, however, because that I think that's uh, you know it's a I think there's it's a dangerous assumption to to assume that uh, uh, um, you know if you describe someone as anti-Semitic that it's that it's the same as what the Nazis were doing because I, I think there are there are shades of grey in that. Yeah, and you make that distinction really clear in the book. That it is it is very nuanced, and you describe the different kind of strands and reasons for the inaction, really, of the of the rest of the world, very yeah. clearly and very well. I find yeah. um, it's interesting, as you say, that despite that, for instance, the Polish government in exile, but also some individuals took it upon themselves to to do something and to help, um, and often they did so at at great personal risk. Um, the hero of your book, um, Lados, is, is one such person. Um, what, what motivated him to do something to help the victims of the, of the Holocaust? And who, who was he kind of as a, as a person? Yeah, it's a good question. He came from Lvov, um, modern day Lviv in Ukraine. Um, he, was, he had been um, a, a junior diplomat um, through the interwar period. So he'd been Present at the negotiating party at the um, uh, uh, Treaty of Minsk, for example, um, in what was that, 1921, I think it was. Um, so he'd been, and he'd been consul general in um, Munich um, in the uh, late 1920s. So he'd sort of, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd been around. He was a junior diplomat, and his his um, his career was sort of um, 
derailed really by the um, the coup that Pilsudski, Josef Pilsudski, took power in Poland in 1926, and um, Wadosh, along with others, um, was one of those that sort of protested against the sort of suspension of of uh, democratic politics in Poland, um, and was effectively sidelined. His his, his um, career couldn't really continue from then on. So he became a sort of politician on the he was a member of the peasant party actually so his politics are quite peculiar it's a peasant party is sort of socially conservative but um um uh, economically quite left so it's sort of center left really but but very center um so a, a curious mixture of uh, of political stances actually um and he came as i said he came from Lvov, which has this very very strong um jewish strand in its in its uh, history and in its traditions you can see in um, uh, uh, Philip Sand's book a few years ago, East West Street is, is essentially you know, set very very similar um, small town close to the book. Um, it shows that that um, that sort of that world that he came from very 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 clearly. Um, and then in the in 1939, like others, you know, he escapes out through uh, Romania, um, ends up in in. Uh, Paris with the government in exile, and as a, as as then the sort of the most senior representative of the peasant party, um, he's given a position in the exile government in 1950, um, uh, which he's then you know he's usurped from. So he ends up um, being sent out as someone who was considered reliable. He's sent out as a diplomat, um, and Switzerland was somewhere where they needed someone they could trust. The government in exile, they needed someone who was you know. Um, on side with with what they were trying to do and so on, he was considered that man. So he was sent to Switzerland uh, in April of 1940. And crucially, um, in sort of describing his mindset, there are two two factors that we need to bring into this. And one is that supposedly on his escape from Poland in 1939 uh, down into Romania, he'd been helped along the way by ordinary an ordinary Jewish family. Um, and he's he wrote a sort of half wrote a memoir which wasn't finished and was never published. But he talked about how that had, um, uh, I suppose, coloured his attitude towards the Jews. I think he already came from a, a, a background which was broadly sympathetic. But that you know, that he was assisted on, in his escape by ordinary Jews, ordinary Polish Jews, um, really cemented that sort of sympathy for the, for the Jewish plight. Uh, and secondarily. Um, Going back to the First World War, when he was a young man, he was um, actually um, he was in the you know, growing up in the um, Austrian partition with the Austrian heir of Galicia uh, of Poland, and was um, was sentenced to internal exile for, for pro-Polish agitation, uh, and was sent to the Tyrol in in Austria, and promptly escaped with you guessed it a forged passport. Um, so in a sense, you know, he 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 like many other poles of that generation. This this aspect, and I bring this up in the book. This aspect of of, of the Polish word conspiracja, meaning meaning um, life in life in conspiratorial circles, shall we say, life in the underground, was not just a theory. It was something that many of them had actually lived. You know, they'd lived through it um, during the partition during the First World War. Um, so they, you know, even though that you know he's a very respectable man and you know is appointed ambassador to Switzerland, that's very much in his makeup that. You know, he has personally benefited in his life from a forged passport. He um, consequently, you know, is not 
afraid of, um, you know, forging paperwork, which is remarkable for an ambassador. Uh, he's not afraid of forging paperwork, you know, for a higher cause. Um, so that that's a sort of peculiarly Polish um, aspect, I think, of his makeup. Because you know? there, there are lots of other diplomats in World War II and just before World War II who are doing similar things. You, you think of um, someone like Thomas Kendrick in Vienna. Um, there was a, a, a Chinese individual, Ho Feng Shan, Kiyune Sugihara in Kaunas in Lithuania. There are other examples. Um, but I think this... This this one with the Wadosh group is is peculiar because of that sort of peculiarly Polish flavour to it. Um, that you know they, and it, interestingly, you know, holds apart from the attitude of the Swiss, who are absolutely punctilious and correct about paperwork and and the idea that a, a public official, you know, a, a a senior diplomat would would not only tolerate but actively involve himself mm. in the forging of of official documents. Uh, to the Swiss mind is absolutely unthinkable, then as now, right? And yet for the Poles, as I said, you know, with their traditions, this is kind of, well, that's fair game. This is how this is how you do things. This is how you get things done in extremists, uh, is that you sometimes have to break the rules, you know, get over it. <laughs> so the, the two attitudes are sort of poles apart, you know, just punning, punning aside. Um, and I love that aspect. I think that's really fascinating. And the, and the, and the Swiss really, really didn't like it. They, they, they tried very hard to shut the Wadosh group down. Um, but that, those, those two attitudes, I think, are fascinating. So you have someone from a sort of background who's quite open-minded towards um, doing things in a, in a slightly creative way, shall we say, someone who's already fairly sympathetic towards the Jewish plight, someone who wants to help a fellow Pole, I think you can go as far as that also to say that, yeah. you know, we always distinguish, you know, between uh, sort of Jewish people and, and citizens of, of specific countries, be that Poland or Germany or Austria, as if, you know, they were two separate things, but for many for many Jews, of course, they were Poles at the same time as being Jews. Yeah. So he's already got that sort of mindset as well. Yeah. Um, we, so, you know, we forget that, um, you know, that you know, half of the dead of the Holocaust are Polish Jews. You know, oh. um, it's very much a you know a, a subject that's entwined in Polish history. You can't sort of separate out the two. And I think this is this is something that I think is one of the one of the sort of errors, if you like, of of Holocaust historiography up to now is that there's a tendency to to view the Holocaust um, you know, almost exclusively through a sort of Jewish prism. Uh, and to separate it out from its from its hinterland, you know, from, particularly from that that Polish hinterland, and I think that it's important to to view it in the round. You know, in, it's a much more complex and uh, a nuanced story um, and painful story um, than than it was necessarily understood before. Absolutely, and it seems to me that people like like Ladosh themselves saw saw it that way. They were also helping fellow Poles escape. Um, yeah, but sort of once he'd, once he'd made up his mind, how did he go about doing it? So just talk us through the mechanics, if you will, of his of his plan. Yeah, so as I said, they, they start getting these sort of desperate, um, you know, um, letters from, from occupied Poland, from the ghettos and so on. You know, people asking for help. And they had already helped a few people on, on an ad hoc basis um, with paperwork. Um, one of which, incidentally, was the, was the, the French uh, Jewish politician uh, Pierre Mondes France, who um, uh, was was provided with a, um, a Polish passport actually by the Wadosh group, 
um, so that he could escape Vichy France uh, in '41. Uh, um, so uh, yeah, so they'd already already sort of assisting people on an ad hoc basis, um, and then really from '40 late '41, early '42 onwards, then they, it begins to become a bit more systematic, um, and they they um, start they need to raise funds. So a lot of the, the funding is supplied by their um, Jewish comrades, the representatives of the aid agencies, and so on, and later on by the by the government in exile as well. It's fun. It's quite a funny story that they that the government in exile actually contacts Radosh in 1943 and says to him that they've heard, you know, the rumor that it might be possible to to uh, you know, forge Latin American passports to help Jews to escape the Holocaust. Could they investigate? And they're basically telling Radosh that about his own his own scheme that he's been doing for two years, effectively. Um, because he kept it quiet, you know, he he he'd been operational security meant that you know he kept kept quiet what he was doing. Uh, you told as few people as possible. So you know he then went back and confessed to them and said, "Well, I've actually been doing that. Thank you very much. It is me that's been doing it." Um, and uh, and they said, "Well, you know, jolly good, carry on. And what can we do to help and so on?" Which is, I, I suppose, must have been a relief to them. Um, so anyway, so they've got um, this honorary consul who will supply the supply the blank. Uh, passports mainly for Paraguay. About seventy percent of what they supplied were Paraguayan passports um, and uh, a lesser document for the promesa, which is just a, a sort of um, a certificate of, of citizenship, if you like, that didn't have a photograph and so on. But it was much cheaper to provide. Um, so about seventy-five, seventy percent of them are, are Paraguayan, um, and these are filled out by by Wadosh's staff. Most of the most of the paperwork is done by a chap called Konstantin Rakitsky, uh, who's one of his staff, um, has very distinctive handwriting that you can see on all these on these documents. And then they're sent back to taken back to Hoodley to be stamped and signed in the usual way. Um, so again, we have there's a slight query over the whole aspect of them being forged because in a way they're illegally produced. They're they're pr produced effectively in the normal way. Um, but illegally. Um, so, you know, the, well, forgers is probably, you know, that's a, um, uh, a word that some might take issue with, but it's, a, it's as good a title as any. Um, and then those documents are uh, notarized and so notarized copies are made and then they're sent into, you know, often by post even, they're sent into occupied Poland and later on, later on there's a large number sent into Holland as well. Um, and effectively this, uh, preserves the recipients from uh, onward deportation to the death camps by the Germans. Because the, um, one of the preconditions, this is something I think I certainly hadn't really fully appreciated before. One of the preconditions of, uh, for the extermination of the Jews in, during the Holocaust was that the Germans made um, an extra legal space, we can call it. They made an extra legal space. A, a space beyond law where they could put these people prior to their onward deportation. Now, that's usually the ghettos or whatever it is. And actually, for, for German Jews particularly, this is quite a stark example. The German Jews deported, and those deportations start late in 41, deported out of Berlin and Hamburg and other cities into, very often into occupied Poland, into places like Łódź or like Warsaw or further east to Kaunas or Minsk or wherever it is. Um, there was a, an aspect of that deportation was that as soon as they crossed the, the German frontier, um, any documents that they had effectively lapsed, legally lapsed. 
you know, were considered invalid at that point. And that was written into German law. So they are they are consciously creating an extra legal space into which to put these people. And what the passports do is to reassert some sort of legal framework, however spurious it might be. It reasserts some some sort of legal representation. So if you can imagine, you know, a Polish Jew in the in the Warsaw ghetto who is about to be deported, and he holds up his Paraguayan passport and he says, "You can't do this to me. I'm a Paraguayan citizen." And it doesn't matter that he only speaks Yiddish. He doesn't know where Paraguay is, and his name's Yitzhak Feldman. It doesn't matter because the the, the guards will say, "Oh, you know, crikey, we've got another one," um, you know, and you'd be sent to you'd be sent to Belsen. Actually, you, you wouldn't be sent on to Auschwitz. You'd be pulled out of the line and you'd be sent to Belsen because the, because the Germans had this, made a sort of virtue out of this, uh, you know, the fact that there were so many, apparently so many foreign Jews in their, in their control at this point, that they wanted to collect up foreign Jews. And they, they saw that they could leverage them in some way. So they reclassified them as what they called exchange Jews. These are people that could be exchanged for Germans abroad, right? And there were many more Germans abroad than there were, you know, foreign Jews in Europe. So um, they collected them up and they sent them sent them largely to Belsen, others to a camp in, in France called Butel, um, and, uh, you know, kept them, uh, kept them alive in relatively, I stress relatively, good conditions, weren't forced to work for much of that period, for example. They were allowed to keep their own clothes and so on. So in better conditions than many of the other prisoners in Belsen, certainly. Um, and they were kept for some future exchange. Um, in the vast majority of cases, that exchange never happened. So, you know, if you were lucky, let's put it this way, if you were lucky and you had one of these passports, you got sent to Belsen in 1943. If you were lucky, you had to survive Belsen for two years to survive the Holocaust, which is a tough ask. But the key thing is that that passport allowed you to escape the deportation to Auschwitz-Birkenau or to Treblinka and to the death camps. Um, so that, you know, it is, it's crucial in that respect that it gave them at least a chance of life. Yeah, and what your book does really well, I think, is, is I mean, this is just one small aspect, really, of, of, the, of the huge history that is, you know, the Holocaust, effectively, is just one part of, uh, the entire big story that shows that some people were actually trying to do something about it, were trying to to help, and you break it down to a level I think that makes um, some of it more accessible. It makes it, you know, as you say, these insights into the idea that you know even just a, a kind of um, assumption of some form of legal framework actually sometimes made a difference is is yeah. something I think that's very hard to comprehend in this in this entire sort of extremely messy and extremely unpleasant part of, of human history really. And I yeah. think one thing that also really stands out in your book is is the many people in it, you know, just humans, individuals that aren't, you know, statistics or numbers, because I think there's always a a risk when you tell the history of the Holocaust that you basically end up talking about groups of people that are very difficult to to imagine as individuals or as people. But you're you know, the people in your book have got names, they've got stories, they've got background, and, and you can kind of um, access their story more, more easily. Was there an individual, yeah. um, apart from Ladosh and, and the Ladosh group, was there an individual that you came across in your research that, that you would like to highlight here? Um, I suppose that, I mean, that it is a very human story. I wanted it to be that. Um, so, and, that, you know, with a lot of this, there's, you know, there's no shortage of, 
you know, really, really poignant, I mean, painfully poignant stories from the Holocaust. I mean, obviously. Um, so I, you know, I, I really wanted to sort of harness as much of that stuff as I could because it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a great way in for the reader. It's very emotive stuff. Um, I suppose there's one story that I did found. I mean, there's some, there's some really, there's some amazing characters. There's a chap called Louis Tass, who was a Dutch Jew, who had one of these um, passports, and he ended up in Nelson, as, as many did, and survived Nelson. And, and I loved his his sort of tone. He had this sort of very wry, you could almost say sarcastic sort of view of the world, which I suppose is a result of his, you know, his experiences as a young yeah. man. Um, but he sort of looked at the world with a with a, a shrug and a you know crikey what's going to happen now you know that sort of attitude, and it comes across in his in his um, he wrote diaries and these were published um, under a pseudonym post war, um, and his his wry look at the world I just thought was was I mean gen- sometimes laugh out loud funny, um, which uh, I loved and there's a few there's a few quotes from him in the book which I, I thought were brilliant, um, so of course I used them. I mean, one story that I, I that still stays with me, and I think this, you know, it really should this this aspect of it could could be a you know a Hollywood film. Um, one of the one of the uh, people that ended up in Belson was a, a Warsaw Jew who went under the name of Professor Eisenman, um, and he was very sort of taciturn. He had this terrified look in his eye, as many did, you know, after their their experiences of uh, you know watching. The, experiencing the liquidation of the ghetto for example in 43 and then being deported not knowing where they were going and so on end up in Belson not really understanding what's what the future holds um and very often they've you know they've seen people killed they've had family members that disappeared into the death camps and so on so these are really brutalized people so Eisenman always had this terrified look in his eye um and eventually the story comes out of of what had happened to him um, so he went by this name of Professor Eisenman. He wasn't a professor at all, apparently. He was a he was a Warsaw grave digger, and he'd found the body of the real Professor Eisenman uh, in the street during the during the, the um, uh, liquidation of the ghetto in '43. Um, and he'd realised that that um, the Professor Eisenman uh, had a sort of passing resemblance to him. So he sort of rifled through the through the professor's um, pockets and found his identity papers. Which included a Paraguayan passport, right? Because he'd already obviously applied and received one. So he put all this in his pocket and then was subsequently himself um, identified as an exchange Jew and as uh, taking the identity of Professor Eisenman, um, was uh, sent to Belsen, at which point he was sort of terrified because there he was, a very simple man um, who only spoke Yiddish, didn't understand what was going on around him, um, and was sort of terrified of revealing his true identity even to his fellow prisoners, because he thought that would be the end. You know, he'd be identified as, as, the, as the simple grave digger and would be, uh, would be sent to his death. So he was absolutely terrified and eventually told one of his uh, fellow prisoners in Belsen this story. Um, and they sort of, um, you know, they sympathised and, and helped him through it. And in the end, he actually got exchanged. He, they, nobody betrayed his real identity, but he actually got exchanged and, and pres- presumably his his recipients, uh, <clears throat> the people that met him, expecting Professor Eisenman, and they were met by a Yiddish-speaking grave digger. It's, it's, it's such a wonderful story. So there are there are sort of. I mean, this is a thing. Even in the story, as utterly, unendingly grim and, and horrific as the Holocaust, there are still little flashes of light and empathy and love, even 
you know that you can that you can find in the record that you can pull out and i think that you know in a way we, we particularly those stories you kind of need that you need to you need to have little human moments uh, in that narrative and I, and i hope i've done that yeah i can imagine especially researching it i mean you do describe awful sometimes almost unthinkable acts of of cruelty in the in the book as well and i'm sure you yeah. came across a lot more in your research yeah. uh, too um how how do you deal with holding this sort of history in your head researching it go, whilst also going about your your daily life do you try and shut yeah. out what you learn or do you try and um, take time I'm, to process it or? well i'm sure you you know have the, a similar thing you know particularly you know with your you know with your work on the gdr as well Katya. you know you you've come across horrors um maybe not as as visceral necessarily as as with the holocaust or as, or as intense as the holocaust but still you know they're horrors nonetheless and in a way you know you, you get hardened to them um which is is this kind of sad thing to say but you do get hardened to them you keep them at one at one remove so there's a there's a part of you as a as a writer and as a historian that reads these accounts and goes oh my god that's that, that's like that's amazing that's brilliant material if you like i mean it's horrific but in a way, your 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 writer's mind is saying, okay, that's brilliant. I can use that. Right? That's really emotive. That's really you know great piece of you know a great human story. I can use that. Um, and it's actually quite rare, I find, that that this that the material you're reading kind of penetrates this sort of that that detachment. But sometimes it does. And 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 there's a couple of examples. There was one that I read, and I, I tell the story in the book. Um, of a woman who was in again was in Belsen, and she had um, she had on the on the transport to Belsen, she was so convinced that they were being deported to their deaths that she pushed her infant son out of the, out of the out of the, the train carriage, um, and as you can imagine, never saw him again. And then she realized that actually she was in a safer place. When she was in Belsen, she realized she was actually in a safer place than he was, wherever he was. So she spent, the, you know, every night she used to sort of, you know, scream out in her sleep and say, you know, where's my son? What have I done with him? And so on. And blaming herself for it. And, 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 you know, reading stories like that, on the one hand, you think, yes, that's, you know, that's great. I'll use that. That's really good material. And then at some point it sort of creeps up on you and you go, my God, that is absolutely um so that occasionally you get you know these stories they they do literally creep up on you um you know you know at night when you can't sleep or whatever it is or at different moments it will just creep up on you and the, and the sheer horror of what these individuals endured um you know is suddenly is suddenly very very real um so it's, yeah that it, 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 there are defense mechanisms i think which kick in but sometimes you, you know they get circumvented yeah, I know exactly what you mean, especially when there's something in what you read or what you research that speaks to you personally um, yeah. for whatever reason. Um, but sometimes there are ways in which the, the situation of the person reminds you of, of something in your own life or people yes, remind that, you of people that you know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, trying to shut things out and, and viewing them from an academic's point of view. Yeah. Only goes so far sometimes that that doesn't no, exactly. quite um, it, it creeps up on you. Or well, the sheer weight of it. You know. I mean it is doing work on I hadn't written anything really directly on the Holocaust before and it it is like peering into the abyss sometimes. So yeah. I'm not gonna hurry to do it again, to be honest. But uh, it yeah, it's 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 thoroughly uh, thoroughly brutal. 
Well, thank you for coming along and talking to us about this subject. Um, even though it isn't, it isn't always easy, but you do tell a, an incredibly important story, and I think one that that deserved to be preserved and told and and spread to to wider audiences. And I certainly hope that many of my readers and my listeners will feel inspired to to buy and read your book um, because it is not only an important story, but also very grippingly told with all of these um, individuals and human stories um, in it too. Um, incidentally, the audiobook is excellent as well, read very impactfully by the author himself. Mm -hmm. um, so you can give your, <laughs> yourself a pat on the shoulder for that one. Um, no, I do think you read it very, um, you know, with the, with the sort of real sense that, that you care about the story that you tell. Um, your tone and your voice, the pace and, and um, things all, all kind of work really well with the story that you tell. So best of luck with the book um, and thank, thank you, you for coming on um, to talk about it. Lovely. Thank you. My, my, my great pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, and there you have it, the very first episode of the Zeitgeist podcast, and I hope you found it as interesting as I have. Um, please consider becoming um, a free or a paid subscriber to my Zeitgeist tight guys um substack to support my work and other than that um auf wiedersehen und bis zum nächsten mal